participating in toddler nursery and children's church, you are dismissed to head back that way. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 15. Psalm 15, as we continue our series together, Songs for Our Savior, Psalm 15. Beginning in verse 1, a psalm of David, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word today. Father, thank you for the course of this worship service this morning. Father, that it began with the testimony of baptism. Picture of being buried with Christ in our sin, but raised to walk in newness of life with him. Picture of unity with Christ. Picture of life in Christ. Father, thank you that we have heard testimony of the work of the gospel around the world, especially among our friends in Africa. Father, thank you for the songs that we've been able to sing this morning to declare praise to your name, to the glory of your son and to the work of the spirit in our lives. Father, thank you for your word and the reading of it this morning. Father, as we walk through the the truth of your word together, may our hearts and minds be transformed. May we be conformed to the image of Jesus. Father, may we leave different than we came. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, we want to see Jesus, our citizenship in Zion. Jesus, our citizenship in Zion. We have... um, this psalm is technically connected very deeply to the one that we looked at last time, where David prayed at the end of that psalm that salvation would come from Zion. And we saw that Zion is a representative reality of Jesus. And so now there's this description of who gets to live there, who gets to go to that holy hill, who gets to dwell in the tent that is with the Lord. In other words, who gets to be in Christ. And so this is a profound question of relationship that we see happening in verse one. So in verse one, there's this profound question of relationship. Oh, Lord, who may abide in your tent? It's a great question. Who may dwell on your holy hill? In other words, what David is asking is, what does it take to have a long standing, intimate relationship With God. Now, I know that that's not everyone's concern. I know it's not. You just go catch a random Joe on the street and you start asking them about 
you know, the purpose of their life and the desire of their life and the longing of their life. And you're not usually always going to get an answer like, I'm just trying to figure out how to have a long-standing, intimate relationship with God. That's not the normal course of response that you might just catch from running into the average person on the street. But in a crowd like this one morning, where you made a choice to come and participate in corporate worship, there's a thousand other things that you could have done today, and this is what you're doing. I would venture a guess that a vast number of people sitting in this room right now have wrestled with the question, what does it take to have an intimate, long-standing relationship with God? That's the desire of the Christian's heart. In other words, who is allowed to, who can dwell where God's presence of peace is. I want to be where God is and I want to be there in peace with him. What does that look like and what does that take and what kind of person is allowed into God's presence where his wrath has been removed and he is welcoming us in as not only sons and daughters, but also citizens and in some biblical cases, friends. We are no longer enemies. But there's a loving relationship. There's an intimacy there. There's a closeness. We are now image bearers of the one who gave us our imprinted image to start with. What does it take to have this relationship? It's a profound question. And David's asking it. Who can do this? What kind of person is allowed to be in the presence of God like this? Now, David gives us some character qualities of a righteous citizen of Zion in the next several verses. We're going to walk through those. And we're going to struggle, friend. I just want to tell you this morning, we're going to struggle. When I was walking through these this week, recognizing how short I come of measuring up to everything that David's about to say. I even texted one of the other elders and said, hey, look, this is what this says. This is brutal. I want to forewarn you, this is going to be rough. Because if we're honest with ourselves, none of us is going to feel like we're a qualified citizen of Zion after we hear what David has to say about who gets to be there. Just I'm going ahead and giving away the end of the story. But don't lose hope. We find a place of hope at the end. Just know along the way it's going to be harsh. I don't mean for it to be, but it's going to be harsh. So the first thing that David lists, who can dwell with God in a peaceful, abiding, intimate relationship? First, he who walks with integrity. Now, of course, you have a classic modern definition of integrity. Integrity is doing the right thing, even if no one sees it. And that's a fine, functional, modern definition of integrity. The problem is that this word that's translated integrity here, when we give it the biblical definition, integrity here means someone who is blameless and without fault and has no defect at all. I told you it was going to be harsh. So if you want to be a citizen of Zion, 
If you want to dwell in the tent of God, if you want to be on his holy hill, if you want to have a loving, intimate, peaceful relationship with God, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the very first thing that has to be true about you is that you have to be blameless, without fault, with no defect in you at all. We don't really need to go through the rest of the list. If you still feel qualified, I've got really bad news for you. You're not perfect. In fact, I had a professor a bunch of years ago tell me and several members of our class in seminary. He said, if any of you ever finds a perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. Because it's true. None of us is without blame. None of us is without fault. None of us is without defect. None of us has what the Bible defines as a walk in integrity, flawless perfection. And this echoes what Jesus said, which echoes what the Old Testament said. What does it take to be in the presence of God? Jesus, citing the Old Testament, we must be what? Perfect as our Father is perfect. This is the requirement to dwell on the holy hill of God. Absolute moral and ethical perfection. The one who walks in integrity. And I'll tell you the truth. As I was walking through this this week, preparing for this morning, I just started creating a checklist of all the reasons I shouldn't get to dwell with God. And the first one was, I do not have flawless, perfect, moral, and ethical living in my life. I just don't. It's not true of me. But it's a requirement if you want to dwell in Zion. Second, not only does this person walk in integrity, but as verse 2 continues, they also, this person also works righteousness. When the language is set up like this, it becomes very severe. This isn't just someone who's been declared righteous as we normally like to lean on in our understanding of justification. No, this person actually works righteousness. The word work there means to do, to make, to practice. And righteousness means that which is correct, right, and just at all times. This person practices that which is right on every occasion. If somehow you made it past walking in integrity, this may now exclude you. By the way, you didn't make it past walking in integrity. So we're, we're just piling the severity on ourselves at this point. The person who wants to dwell with God in Zion on his holy hill must be blameless and without fault, and in everything that they practice, they must practice it to the perfect place of justness and righteousness according to the definition of God in every circumstance. Now remember, this is David who's writing this. We won't have a pop quiz, but just internally to yourself, can you think of any occasions where David didn't live up to the standard? 
There's plenty of opportunities in the story of David's life to see that he himself did not live up to this. Yet he's declaring this is what it takes to dwell with God. Third, and friends, we're going to spend a little time here because there's some unique things happening at the end of verse two and the start of verse three that I think have a deep impact on all of us. And so I want to take a few minutes with it. But the third thing that David points out about those who are able to abide in God's tent and dwell on God's holy hill has to do with the nature of our internal and external speech. Say, what in the world do you mean by internal speech? Please tell me that I'm not the only one who in his head talks to himself throughout the day. Like I have these ongoing conversations with myself about life and about what's going on, about what I should be doing and not doing and how things are going. Surely I'm not the only one. Okay, from the nodding and the looks, I see most of you are also normal like me. Those of you who are kind of confused, please talk to yourself a little more. It's a healthy and good thing to do. It really is. It's a great conversation. But David starts with internal speech. Look at verse 2. At the end of it, he says, and speaks truth in his heart. It starts with speaking truth in the heart. And remember, we talked about what the heart is in Hebrew Old Testament. My emotional and willful epicenter is filled with right and good speech, even if that right and good speech never reaches my lips. In other words, we don't lie to ourselves about us, about God, or about others, even in the internal conversations of our heart. To put a really fine point on it, we don't walk up to that guy at the business meeting or the grocery store or even at church on Sunday morning and smile and reach our hand out and say, Hey, how's it been going, buddy? And in our head go, Eh, dog. That's internal speech. And it's marked... By truth and goodness, we speak truth to ourselves in our heart about God, about ourselves, about others, even if we never physically verbalize it. How many times over the course of a day do we lie to ourselves about how good God is, about how bad sin is? About how we need the Lord. About how we should be broken rather than prideful. How often do we lie to ourselves about the nature of our neighbor and our friends and those in our community? For whatever reason. We never verbalize it necessarily. But how often throughout the day do we deceive ourselves with our own thoughts? And David says if you want to dwell... The holy hill of God. It starts with internal speech that is good and is right and that is true. But then he continues in verse three, this external reality of our speech. He says, and he does not slander with his tongue. Doesn't do evil or reproach his neighbor. And we'll touch on that one a little bit more in a moment. But this this concept of the one that can dwell with God continues by not slandering and gossiping. This this word here for slander carries with it not just ill speaking, but also false speaking. And it could have to deal with things that may or may not be true. We don't fully know things that aren't really anyone's business to know or to find out. They're things that we have to make assumptions about. 
And friends, I want to kind of pull the, the layers of this onion back a little bit when it comes to slandering our neighbor. It's usually among Christians crouched in a, quote, concern for their well-being. Decades now of church life. You have no idea how many prayer meetings I've gone to that have been sessions of slander and gossip crouched under the I'm just so concerned for her. We need to pray for sister so-and-so. Have you not heard what she's going through? Let me tell you all about it. Let's pray for her. No one's concerned for her spiritual well-being. They just want to slander sister so-and-so. And crouch it in the language of spiritual concern. It's how we self-justify. I'm not really sure if this is true or not. But. I could be mistaken and wrong, but I am very worried. Let's pray our gossip out loud to God. Can't say amen, say ouch. But the scripture makes it really clear. That the person who's going to dwell In Zion with God is the person who never misuses their speech in that way. If you made it past the first few that we were walking through, we're not getting past this one. One of the chief reasons the scripture always goes to the human mouth as a gauge for our righteous walking with God, is that the human capacity to speech and communication is one of the greatest reflections that we have that we've been made in the image of God. In the beginning, in the creation story, it says, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. God speaks things into existence. And then when you move to the continuation of the creation story in Genesis chapter two, he turns to the man he has made and he says, I want you to speak now and give names to. And there's this reflection of the power that words have. Literally thousands of references in the Old and New Testament of how we use our mouths, how we use our tongues, how we use our speech. Jesus himself declaring that by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. James giving the great warning that the tongue, it's like a small spark can light a great fire. That man has learned to control everything in the world, but he's never learned to control his own tongue. Profound warning after warning after warning of the danger of ill speaking on the part of Christian people. Those who are truly reflecting God. And often we disguise these as either spiritual concern for others or we disguise it as a conversation about asking for wisdom on how to handle something. Hey, listen, I don't know if you know what's going on or not. And I just need a little wisdom on how to handle this. But did you know? And there comes the flood of gossip and slander. But I'm really just trying to seek wise counsel. The scripture doesn't use it in this way. But what most of us do when we do things like that is we poison the well of the mind of the person that we're talking to. You never had an ill thought about this person, but now you're going to think about them a little bit differently because I've said X about them to you. 
And I've justified myself every way that I can to try to excuse the ill way that I've spoken about my brother or sister. And I feel justified before God that I haven't done anything wrong when I really had no merit at all to speak about them in that way in the first place. My brothers and sisters, I would say to you that most of the problems that we experience in our lives and in our churches and in our homes would disappear if we would all learn to control our tongues more readily. If we would learn to do what the scripture says and be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to be angry. There's a reason why Jesus came and was called the word. It's because there's a power in speech that is not found in anything else. God has chosen to save the world by means of the spoken word, the gospel. It's profoundly powerful when we open our mouths and when we open them for ill, we are demonstrating one of the greatest non reflections of the image of God that we can. God has given us this incredible power and we use it for ill. John says in his epistle, how can you say that you love God whom you have seen and yet hate your uh, whom you've not seen and yet hate your brother who you have seen? And he speaks of the ill talk that we have about one another. And David declares here in this text that the citizen of Zion, the one who can abide with God and dwell in his holy hill, not only walks in integrity, not only works righteousness, not only speaks truth in his own heart, but when he actually does speak, it's not full of slander. Now, I understand that there are occasions for exception to this. There are times when a brother or a sister truly has done something wayward and wrong. And the scripture says that the only loving thing to do is to actually address the wayward and wrong thing that they've done. But in every case. In every case. The scripture says that when you see your brother and sister in sin, you should go to sister so and so and tell them. No, that's not what it says. In every case, when you see a shortcoming in the life of your brother and sister, the loving, righteous, God honoring, dwelling with God thing to do is to go to that brother and sister and address the issue with them. That's what it says you're supposed to do. And then and only then, if they will not repent of what is actually sin, do you bring others in on it as well? Because then and only then are you showing true care and concern for their spiritual well-being rather than for your own desire at expanding that which may or may not be true. And I know that according to worldly wisdom, sometimes it says don't do it that way. But you know what? The scripture trumps worldly wisdom every day. Every day. So not only is the citizen of Zion one who walks with integrity, one who works righteousness, one who speaks truth in their heart and also speaks truth externally with their tongue. But this person who can dwell with the Lord is also righteous in a social sense. They are righteous among the people that they live. Notice what it says as we continue in verse three. This person does does not do evil to his neighbor. Nor do they take up a reproach against their friend. There's no evil against their neighbor. And I love this because neighbor can include friend or foe. Well, who is my neighbor? Classic statement 
made in the New Testament. Who is my neighbor? And in this case, in that story, the neighbor was the person considered the greatest enemy of the one asking the question. So neighbor carries with it friend or foe. You don't do evil against your friend or your foe. In other words, in social interactions, the Christian's response, the one who is going to dwell rightly with God in Zion, should never start from a place of, well, yeah, they did X to me, so now all things are fair. They didn't do me right, so it's no whole bar. I'm ready now to engage them any way that I want to, whether it's with sass or sarcasm or, or whatever it might be. I'm going to put them back in their place. I'm not going to get mad. I'm going to get even. No, we don't do evil to our neighbor. In fact, the New Testament declares that what we should do to those who stand against us is to heap coals of kindness on their head. If the one walking along with you is to take your cloak, offer them the undercoat as well, Make peace with your enemy while you're on the way. And then David tightens it. And he says, you shouldn't reproach a friend. There's no reproach against his friend. If there are those that are your friends according to the scriptural definition of what it means to be a friend, those who have come into relationship together, covenantal relationship together, who have a common union to be found in Christ, those who are your brothers and sisters according to the Lord. This idea of reproach means that you don't revile them, you don't taunt them, you don't disgrace them, you don't shame them, and it is deeply connected with the speech issues above. Christians don't run down other Christians. I told you this was going to be harsh. There's a few rare times when I sermon prep where I go, do we really got to preach this one? Because I ran through this checklist and, and I just want to tell you, I, I never flunked a test in school, but I bombed this one. Man. It was bad. And finally, he closes with those who can dwell in Zion. They despise the reprobate. Despise the reprobate. This is a genuine disgust for those that center their lives around the rejection and rebellion of godliness. In other words... The Christian, the one who truly dwells in Zion, does not excuse away the moral shortcomings of their social heroes simply because they are their social heroes. They acknowledge that reprobate living, especially public reprobate living, is a disgrace to the name and glory of God. And they will not give honor to a person who actively and intentionally makes little of God's glory. And most of us can readily kind of nod and mouth an amen on that. 
until we really start running through the list of our social heroes and we recognize how many of them truly care nothing about Christ at all, yet we honor them in our lives. When I was thinking through this, man, a huge list just jumped in my head of people that I honor and that I respect, I speak well of, that I probably never should because they care nothing about God, they care nothing about Christ, and their lives are extremely marked by it. Then David makes a shift. All So far, all of these have been in the negation. So he closes with that negation. And then he throws in a few positive markers as well. He says that those who those who would dwell in Zion honor those who fear the Lord. So this is the, the contrast to the issue about despising the reprobate. You honor those who fear the Lord. If we know someone fears the Lord... Even if we don't have full agreement with everything about that individual, because none of us are perfect. But if we know that someone genuinely fears the Lord, loves Christ, makes much of him. Honor should be on our mouths about that person. We should speak well of those who fear the Lord. And we should speak well of them to others. The person who would dwell in Zion stands true to their own word, even when it's costly. Notice what it says here at the ending of verse four. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, a lot of times people mistakenly associate this with the monetary swearing because of what happens in verse five. But the reality is, is this statement stands on its own apart from just monetary indicators. Sure, this is monetary for certain, but it's other avenues as well. If a person who would dwell in Zion with God declares something, this is who I will be. This is what I will be about. This is the way that I will engage with you. And they do not follow through with it. They are not reflecting. Go back to the beginning, the integrity that was declared from before. And even if it is painful to them and sacrificial to them, they swear to their own hurt and they do not change. And then they don't take advantage of other people. They don't put their money out at interest. They don't take a bribe against the innocent. They don't do things that are solely for their own advancement and to the harm of other people. They engage the world in a peaceful, righteous Way. Now, I don't know about you, but after having looked at that, after having read that, after having studied that, after having filtered through all of that, I felt profoundly discouraged about my citizenship in Zion. Because I, I don't measure up to any of these things. It's not even close. <coughs> Because David closes with the person who does these things will never be shaken. Person who does these things will never be shaken. And friends, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that this 
psalm is intimately connected with the psalm that came before because it it flows from a cry for salvation to come from Zion at the end of Psalm 14, and it moves into a description of the one who's a citizen in Zion in Psalm 15. And so I ask the question of myself, and I hope you've asked it of yourself this morning. How can this be? How can anyone actually live up to the standard of being a citizen of Zion? How can anyone actually abide in God's tent? How can anyone actually dwell on his holy hill? This is what we want. And then he gives this description and it's an impossible description to fulfill. And then I'm reminded of the end of Psalm 14. And I'm reminded that all of these things that are required are not accomplished through my work. Praise God. If I have to be the one who walks in integrity. If I have to be the one who is righteous. If I have to be the one who has internal and external speech that is right. If I have to be the one who's socially righteous. In other words, treats their neighbor and their enemy and their friend with uprightness, even to my own harm. If I have to be the one to accomplish this. I will never achieve this, ever. It will never happen. Is this a lifestyle that I should strive toward? Absolutely. Should I, through the work of the Spirit in my life, strive to be all of these things? Of course I should. That is sanctification. Should I be putting to death the deeds of the flesh and walking according to the gospel and preaching the gospel to myself daily and be conformed to the image of Christ? Absolutely. But friends, my work, my effort, my best foot forward, my righteousness will never achieve the description that is given here of the one who can abide with God. Friends, where is it to be found? This description of righteousness is only to be found in conformity to the image of Christ, which is given to us as a gift in full when Christ saves us. According to God, by his grace and for his glory, I am presently seated In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus now dwells in me. And I dwell in him. He is one with me. And I am one with him. And even though I fail. And even though I struggle. And even though I have sins that need to be repented of. When God sees me, praise be to his name, he sees his son, Jesus, and my life is sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so even though I can take this as a checklist. And I can look at my life and see that it still falls miserably short. I would fail and be remiss if I continue to look at my own life, but rather looked at the life of the one who truly is Zion, the Lord Jesus Christ, and see that he has fulfilled every one of these to the fullest. And now his life is mine. Friends, that's the glory of true salvation. 
The glory of true salvation is that it's not found in my working. It's found in Christ working for me. And the more I look at myself, the more I will feel tragedy and pain and emptiness and sorrow and depression. Because looking at me, I see nothing that looks like this. But the scripture calls for us who are in Christ to look past ourselves and look to the one from whom our salvation comes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, as the song says, which are all of these things that I fall short in, will grow strangely Dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Friends, how can you be a citizen of Zion? How can you dwell intimately and lovingly with the Father on his holy hill? Friend, you can not in and of yourself. But Christ Jesus not only dwells there. He's not just the one dwelling there. He's not just the one enthroned there. He's actually the hill itself. He is the firm foundation. He's the seat of righteousness. He's the gates that we enter through. He is the one who covers all things. He's the fountain of living water. He is a banner over us. He is a shield about us. He is a strong tower that we run into. And friends, when we cease looking at our shortcomings and we continue to abide and look at the great glory that is Christ, then and only then do we rejoice that we also are citizens of Zion because we are in Zion and Zion is in us. And so, friend, when you consider your life and your walk, when you consider... What God demands of his people. Do you feel overwhelmed and crushed by the harsh reality that your efforts never measure up? I beseech you this morning. Abandon such foolishness. Turn your eyes from yourself And turn them to the glory of the crucified and risen Christ. Who is all in all for the glory of God. And then in that moment. A list so severe as this one. Will seem like a beautiful thing. Because in it you'll see Jesus. And you'll cling to him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he and he alone is the one who walks in integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue and does not do evil to his neighbor, does not take up a reproach against his friend. In his eyes, the reprobate are despised. 
He honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not benefit from the the downfall of others. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, will never be shaken. And Father, thank you that he is our firm foundation. And if he is not shaken, we are not shaken in him. Our house has been a house built upon a firm foundation. And when the storms come, that house will stand for that house is in the Lord. Father, forgive us. When we turn our attention away from the glory of Christ to the idol of self. When we look to our own lives and our own existence. When we look to our own efforts and our own righteousness. When we like Peter look to the storm and the wave of the sea rather than the one who walks upon it. Father, forgive us. Father, we want to dwell On your holy hill, we want to abide in your tent. We want intimate, loving relationship with you. And Father, thank you that Jesus, our great intercessor, our high priest, has prayed and is praying for us. And he has prayed this, Father, love them with the same love with which you love me. Father, today, help us to rest In the Sabbath love that is Jesus. Help us to have confidence in your presence because of Jesus. Help us to have boldness in this world because of Jesus. Help us to have strength to throw down sin and to live in righteousness because of Jesus. Help us to honor and love one another. And to forgive each other and to be patient with each other. Because of Jesus. And to him be all the glory. In Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response.